Good morning, Real Life family. Thanks for joining us online this morning for services. I just want to remind everybody that we are going to continue to have services online uh, Sundays at 9 and 1030, in addition to our live services at Daggy at the same time, 9 and 1030, and then this following Thursday night, the 25th. Uh, everybody remember is our first uh, Thursday night service out in Colfax at the Colfax Methodist Church. Services will start out there Thursday night at 6.30. All service times, we're uh, working around that number of 50 people per service, so we're just trying to do our best we can to spread out, offer more services so that we can have uh, everybody have an opportunity to worship together live in person and uh, be together uh, but in smaller uh, 50 or less groups. So that's kind of one of the reasons we added the Colfax location out there. So excited to see everybody out there this next Thursday night for our first one, and uh, it's going to be good. So with that, let me get rolling with our message this morning. We are continuing in the book of Acts and this adventure we've been on following Paul and all these things that are going on in the uh, early church. And so um, this particular passage that we're going to get into today is a section of Paul's life uh, kind of recorded here that starts to sound a lot more like a reality TV uh, courtroom show than anything else. It's, it's going to get pretty crazy for Paul. And um, recently, I watched a movie called Just Mercy. It's, uh, if you have Amazon Prime, it's free right now. I'm sure it's available other places too, but it's an excellent, excellent movie. Um, and in that movie, we see how the racial injustice plays out over and over uh, as these uh, particular people are tried and, and put in jail uh, as innocent men. And there's this uh, corruption that's going on throughout the uh, court system in the South. And the main character is a man that's uh, in jail, uh, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, and really has no idea what his future holds and if he'll ever see freedom or not. And it reminded me a lot of uh, what's going on in the chapters that we're looking at here today with Paul. There's a lot of the same types of things going on as Luke re, uh, records the things that are going on in Paul's life here. There, we see a lot of the same things playing out. There is injustice. There's false accusations. There is an innocent defendant uh, being put on trial. But unlike the guy in the movie, Paul actually does have some idea of how his future is going to play out. Thankfully, God has uh, given Paul a vision and, and helped him understand that in the future, Paul is going to uh, preach the gospel in Rome. Now, he doesn't really know at this time how or when that's all going to play out, but he does know that God's given him direction, that he is going to be his man in Rome. And so the story this morning is going to start off in Acts chapter 23, and I'm just going to quickly summarize some of the elements that are going on, and then we'll jump in more of the text in uh, Acts chapter 24. But in 23, um, as we're picking up the scene, Paul is still in Jerusalem. Uh, the mob has happened. This riot has happened. He's been beaten. He gave this speech in defense of himself on the steps of the temple, and we talked about that last week as I was uh, standing on the bridge. Uh, preaching the sermon from the bridge. And so if you missed that one, make sure you jump back and go get it. And so Paul's still in Jerusalem, and the commander of the Roman uh, soldiers there realizes that Paul's uh, crimes have nothing to do with breaking any Roman laws. It has something to do with a religious matter between him and the Jews. And so the Roman commander 
uh, orders the uh, Jews to assemble their high court so that Paul can be heard uh, before the Jewish court, this religious court. Um, and so they assemble the court. And the court that they assemble is uh, the council is called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is essentially the supreme court that would reside and rule over Jewish law. Um, it was made up of a couple of different sects of Judaism, uh, one being the Pharisees and the other being the Sadducees. And so uh, these are the groups that make up sort of like the Supreme Court justices as a kind of a uh, similar analogy. And then the main high priest, the, the highest official in this Sanhedrin court was uh, Ananias, the high priest. And so that's sort of the, the court that's assembled and Paul is going to be heard before them or tried before them for these supposed crimes that he's been accused of. And so the court's assembled and Paul goes before him and he goes to make his defense and before he can barely even get a word out, the high priest orders him to be slapped and, and Paul makes accusations back against him and then other people make accusations back against Paul and it's starting to get a little bit out of control right from the get-go. And then the next thing you know, Paul, uh, fully aware of his audience and who he's speaking to, he proclaims that, hey, the, I think the main reason I'm even here is because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. Well, the Pharisees believed in angels and visions and an afterlife, and the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. And so when Paul proclaims uh, that he's talking about resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees quickly come to his defense and say, hey, this guy's not guilty of anything. He might have had a vision like an angel could have said something to him. And, and then the Sadducees are at odds with the Pharisees. And, and so literally the court erupts in argument and, and fighting and shoving to the point where the Roman commander looks in and says, if I don't do something with Paul, he's going to get torn to pieces in this high court. So he pulls Paul out of the court and he takes him back to the barracks and, and leaves him there. And so there's Paul in the midst of yet another riot in, an, in another giant mess of people uh, angry and at odds with each other. And he's pulled out and he's finding safety of all places in a Roman jail uh, in their barracks, you know, in a cell. And so, um, and so as he's here that night, God comes to him and gives him uh, a vision in a dream. And, and God reminds Paul at that time that he needs to be of good cheer, to be encouraged, because he's he's done, you know, he's essentially saying, You've done such an awesome job. You should be so encouraged. You have been my man here in Jerusalem. You have been my witness here in Jerusalem. And now you need to do the same thing also in Rome. And so he's coming to, to Paul and giving him this assurance that not only have you are you on the right track and you've been on the right track, but you're gonna be my man in Rome. You're going to be my witness in Rome, which is the ultimate platform, the ultimate city of cities to be able to go to. And so Paul gets that assurance from God, and it couldn't have come at a better time because right after this, the Paul's story gets to take a turn for the worse. It gets even more bizarre because now it's discovered that there's actually a plot to assassinate Paul. There are a group of Jews who have made an oath to uh, kill Paul. And they're not going to eat or sleep or do anything until they can have him uh, assassinated. Well, luckily, a relative of Paul's overheard some of the details and reported them to the Roman commander. The Roman commander says, don't tell anybody about this. 
And at this point, I think we're getting some, a little snapshot into the frustration from this Roman commander. Like at this point, I think he's just had it with Paul. He's had it with the Jews. He, he's had it with dealing with this whole mess and this constant bickering and, and arguing and nobody can seem to figure out what the guy is even guilty of. And so he orders right then and there on the spot, really what's a, a top secret nighttime prisoner transfer. And he's going to order Paul to be sent from Jerusalem to a place called uh, Caesarea Maritima. And it's uh, Caesarea Maritima is on the Sea of Galilee, or Sea of Galilee, excuse me. It's on the Mediterranean, the coast of the Mediterranean on the northern side. And and you'll see a map there that shows where uh, it is in relationship to Jerusalem. And so to give you an idea of how serious uh, the Roman commander took these threats against Paul and some insight into probably how important Paul was and, and how, how people perceived him as uh, valuable or an important character. At this point, the Roman commander knew Paul was a Roman citizen and he knew he was from an important city and he knew the Jews were out to kill him and were making plots against him secretly. And so to give you an idea of just how important this is, the, the Roman commander orders soldiers and he says, um, I want you to send 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and I want you to go and get Paul with this, uh, uh, all these footmen and spearmen and soldiers and, and uh, cavalrymen, and I want you to take him to Caesarea tonight under cover of darkness. So like, he didn't just send Paul with a couple of guards. He didn't send Paul in the back of a wagon with 20 guys around him. I mean, we're talking 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 cavalrymen on horses, like it was obvious that uh, he took the threat very seriously against Paul, but it's also obvious that Paul was um, somebody who was seen as highly valuable and highly worth protecting uh, because of his Roman citizenship and because of who he was. And so, so he sends a letter with Paul to uh, the governor in uh, Caesarea. And so this governor was named Felix, and he oversaw the, uh, that region for Rome as their governor. And so this is what the letter said to Governor Felix. In Acts 23, verse 27, it goes like this. He says, This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops, and I rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. And I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was really no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once, and I also ordered his accusers to present their case against him. So Paul is delivered to Felix in Caesarea. And the first thing Felix does when he connects with Paul the very first thing Felix does is he asks him a question. He asks him a really specific question. He says, where are you from? What, what province? What, what county? What city? You know, like, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Where are you from? Right? And Paul says, Cilicia, from uh, Tarsus. And when Paul tells him that he is from the capital city, Cilicia, of Tarsus, uh, that means something. That carries some weight. And so at that point, Felix says, okay, I'll agree to hear your case. And so you understand that Felix, the governor, 
didn't agree to hear Paul's case or preside over it until he knew a little bit more about who Paul was and where he was from. And because he found out he was from Cilicia, that told him a lot about who Paul was. And if he was uh, a Roman citizen of an, a status that Felix was willing to hear the case. Because in the Roman culture, uh, where you were from had a lot to do with your status and um, kind of what level of citizen you were, right? And so the same thing happens today all the time. It's like we ask people where are they from and based on where they're from, we make judgments about uh, their intelligence or their interests or the hobbies they may be uh, interested in or the kind of lifestyle they might live. And so the same thing happens still today. So Cilicia was a big deal. It was a really important city and being from there helped Paul a lot. In fact, the Greek historian Strabo said that Cilicia had actually surpassed even Athens as the center for learning in all of Rome. So it was like this college city where there was uh, education and philosophy were highly valued. To be able to be said about it, that it was like the center for learning in all of the Roman Empire tells you that when you're from Cilicia, people are going to assume some things about you. And so that worked in Paul's favor. So now Paul is about to go on trial again, all right? This is a whole different kind of trial. This isn't a Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin about Jewish laws. This is having his case heard before a Roman governor to try and discern if Paul has broken any Roman laws. And so he is about to make his case before the Roman governor Felix. And it really sums up, the whole case is sort of summed up in one chapter, chapter 24. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up, get out uh, Acts chapter 24. And if you don't, it's going to be on screen. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, it's a good chunk of scripture, but it sort of reads like a story. And so I want to read through the whole passage with you and then we'll kind of break it down from there. So jump in Acts 24 with me. It goes like this. All right. Five days later, the high priest, Ananias, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. So this is Tertullus speaking. He says, We have enjoyed a long period, uh, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So Tertullus is engaging in a style of rhetoric to um, address the judge here where he starts off with a lot of flattery. He really pours on the sweetness and the honey like, oh, Felix, you're so amazing. Life has been so good under your charge. Like you're, you're such a great governor. And, 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 and not only that, I, you're so busy, I don't want to bother you. Let me just quickly tell you the charges against this man so you can rule in my favor, right? Like he's, he's sort of trying to just flatter him and then win him over to just quickly get him to agree with him. And take note of that when we look at how Paul addressed Felix the governor. So now we're going to hear the charges that they're making against Paul. In verse 5, he says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots in, among the Jews and all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. And by examining him, him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we're bringing against him. 
The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. But when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. So you see right here, Paul starts off with a little bit different approach. He doesn't engage Felix with this flattery, and yet he does speak truth. You know, he acknowledges that Felix has been a judge over this region for a number of years, and as a result, he's glad to make his case before him uh, out of respect for his tenure, you know, effectively as a judge. And so one of the things we're going to see with Paul here and in the ongoing times where he uh, tells his story is that Paul doesn't embellish. He doesn't exaggerate. He sticks to the truth. And I think that's important for us to take note of and, and remember. So he goes like this to make this defense. In verse 11, it picks back up. You can easily uh, verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. And I remember the way as the... Uh, the thing that they were, the Christians were called before they were spoken of as Christians. So um, he's saying that I worship the God of our ancestors um, as uh, a follower uh, of Christ, as a Christian. Okay, And so he says, uh, they call that a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And after an absence of several years, <clears throat> uh, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia and they ought to be here uh, before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was the one thing that I shouted out as I stood in their presence, it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Well, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, he adjourned the proceedings and he said, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under his guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. There's a lot of speculation that the reason um, Felix gave Paul some freedom here and flexibility to allow his friends to come and go to see him was that uh, it would make it easier for them to give him resources to bribe Felix because Felix was known as a man that was uh, easily bribed or would take a bribe. And so uh, Paul is under house arrest in Herod's temple in Caesarea, and we'll talk a little bit more about the temple and where he was at next week, but it was a pretty lavish place to be on house arrest. So let's finish it up. It goes like this in verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Uh, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about his faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about uh, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. 
When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix uh, wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So you see here, Felix, uh, this governor, ends up playing a big part in Paul's life, a big role in Paul's life, essentially putting his life on hold for two years. Felix is a guy that was familiar with the Jewish faith. He was married to a Jewish woman named Drusilla, um, who he came about by pretty immoral means. Uh, Felix wasn't a great guy. The, the problem with Felix and his knowledge of the Christian faith is that it didn't ever actually take root as real faith that transformed or changed him, right? He just knew about God without ever actually personally following Christ. And so instead, uh, Felix did really three things that I think are really still common amongst people today. And so I want to kind of break them down for you. First of all, Felix was familiar with Christianity. And I, the, I think the truth is there's a lot of people in our country who are familiar with uh, Christianity. They know bits and pieces. They grew up a, a, around church or had religious people in their family um, but their familiarity with it never actually grows into real faith, like a real trust and following of Jesus. They just are, or, are uh, uh, a little bit knowledgeable or have some understanding of the faith. And, and it's so common in America that we actually have a term for it. We call them cultural Christians. They're the kind of folks that identify as Christian on a form when you have choices of what is your religious affiliation. They'll say, oh, Christian. But that's sort of the extent of their uh, acknowledgement of the faith, is they just sort of acknowledge themselves as Christian. So they're familiar with it, but not really following, right? Second thing is with Felix is Felix was interested in Christianity when it was convenient for him. And I think, unfortunately, that is uh, still an issue that's very widespread today. Uh, like Felix, Many people are familiar with Christianity, but their, their interest in it or their willingness to engage seems to always revolve around whenever it's convenient for them, right? A lot of you know I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and it was always so heartbreaking to me. We would take these kids to camps and uh, missions trips and summer activities, and, and we would watch these kids like just light up as they would commit their lives to Christ and be baptized and go all in to follow Jesus. We would watch them engage with their leaders and, and participate in small groups and grow relationships with their peers and really start to watch them truly grow as young disciples of Jesus. And then inevitably what would happen is fall would come and fall sports would kick off and we would have those same students that were all in excited about following Jesus, growing in their relationship with Him, come back to us and say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't come to youth group anymore. I can't attend my small group anymore because it conflicts with the sports schedule. And I've got basketball practice or I've got a volleyball practice and I can't miss it. And I can't tell you how many hundreds and hundreds of these conversations I've had over the years where we go, what would it look like if your commitment to your relationship with the Lord and your peers and growing in your walk with God was the uh, most important thing. And the sports practice 
came second to that. And so if you had to weigh out which one was the most important, you would go to the sports coach and say, hey, I'm sorry, I want to be on this team, but I can't make this one night of practice because I already have this other commitment. And one of the challenges is then parents would come and back their kid up and they would, they would defend their kids saying, you know, like, uh, you don't understand, like they can't miss any practices. I want my kid to learn that if they start something, they need to finish it. I want them to learn commitment. I want them to learn that they follow through with things. To which I always look at them and say, did you not see the commitment that your child had made to Christ, to the relationship they had made with their small group leader, with their church, with their peers in their small group? Like they were all in learning to walk out the commitment to Christ that they had made and you're trumping all of that to say that volleyball practice one night can't be overlooked, right? Like, oh, I, you could tell I get on a little bit of a soapbox. It was so frustrating to see how uh, whenever their faith became inconvenient, uh, they would bow out. And that happens. That's not just kids. That's not just youth kids or middle schoolers or high schoolers. That's universal with people across the board. It's a, a huge issue as uh, things come up against how convenient it is to be a part of church or a small group or a Bible study or coming on Sundays uh, when it's just inconvenient and there are other things you'd rather do. Well, and the third thing is Felix was looking for what he could get out of it. And so it was like he kept engaging uh, Paul, entertaining this Christian conversation and then these discussions because he was hoping to get something out of it. For sure, he was hoping to get a bribe out of it, but maybe he was hoping to get something else out of it. It was like the reason he was even interested is because there was maybe something to be gained for him personally. And I think that uh, this idea of approaching Christianity with this attitude of what can I get out of it is still really prevalent today. In fact, it's so prevalent that, again, we have a, a term for it. We call it a consumer Christian. It's a, a person who is a Christian but really has this consumer mindset where they approach the faith, whether it's a small group or a Bible study or a church service um, or God, in this, uh, through this lens of, like, what can I get out of this, right? It's take, 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 take. What can I get out of this? So they're evaluating everything based on How's it going to be for them? Is it going to be good for them? Is it going to give them what they want, feed them what they want, right? And, and so they're evaluating everything uh, like a consumer, um, almost like they're going to give a review on every little thing they do so that other consumer Christians can know, is this going to be good for me as well? And to some degree, some of you might be thinking like, well, isn't that sort of what church is about and small group and Bible study and other things are about? is that like giving people things. And, and to some degree, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they are about giving. But you gotta understand, there's a big difference between taking and receiving something that's given freely. Do you, do you understand the difference? There's a big difference between taking and receiving something that's given freely. And it's a, a mindset thing. It's a, a, a heart shift in how we approach things. It made me think of a, a story that happened um, back when my kids were young, when probably they were everywhere, anywhere from like really small Noah to maybe fourth or fifth grade as the oldest one with five kids. We did a lot of bike riding and a lot of fun activities. And I had this sweet mountain bike back then that had one of those awesome little trailers behind it with the big tires. And you could stuff a couple of kids in the trailer and fold the whole flap over and ride with them in the rain or whatever, like who wants to do that? But anyways, it had this cool cover on it, right? I always thought it was some sort of a dad torture device because it was like, 
you, you could, as if biking wasn't hard enough, you could now stuff two kids in it plus all their gear and everybody ended up making you like the water bottle wagon. And so you're pulling around all this weight. But my kids loved going bike riding when they were younger and, and they would argue over who would get to take turns in the trailer. Well, one day we went to go out to ride bikes and we went out by the shed to pick up the bikes and my mountain bike and the trailer were gone. The whole kit, everything was gone. And as we realized it was gone, we were sort of just kind of in shock. Like, how, how did this happen? What happened? You know, and, and, and then it sort of settled in and dawned on us that we'd been robbed. Someone had stolen this bike from us. And at the time, my older kids, fourth and fifth grade, the older boys, they were talking tough. They're like, oh, if we find out, you know, they're all of, you know, three foot eight or something. If we find out who stole this, we're going to this and we're going to that, right? And they're, they're talking it all up. And, and we were frustrated. And our, our, you know, our guns were up as uh, macho guys. We got four boys and one girl. So there's a lot of, a lot of testosterone growing up in, in our home. And so there was all this talk. Well, a couple of weeks goes by and things died down and we sort of forgot about the instance with the bike. And as God would have it, perfect timing, got the Suburban full of the whole family, all the kids in the Suburban, and we're driving through our small little town in North Idaho and out the window we look out and sure enough, one of the kids goes, Dad, there's your bike. And sure enough, here's a guy riding my bike. It's kind of cold and sort of rainy and a miserable day. And there's this guy riding my bike with the trailer on and it looks like a kid in the back. Well, man, my blood pressure went up through the roof and I hit the brakes and I flipped the Yui and just punched it and peeled back up the road. And all the kids are just like, their eyes are this big. They're going, oh my gosh, what is he going to do? Like, this is one of those like, how's dad going to respond moments, right? And I whip into this, uh, this uh, uh, you know road in front of the sidewalk so that he can't cross the sidewalk and stop and block him off. Didn't even stop to think or pray or anything. I jump out of the car to confront this guy. And as I jump out of the car, I look down in the little trailer and there's this beautiful pudgy little blonde toddler girl that it's cold out, it's wet, and she's got no coat on, no socks on, snotty little nose, adorable. And, and just immediately my heart starts to soften, like, like they need help. That's the first thing that came to my mind as I looked at him. And so my attitude started to shift and change. And so I approached the guy and all my kids are stuck to the glass in the suburban wondering if dad's going to get in a fight and how's this all going to play out. And so I, I asked the guy, hey, you're riding my bike. How'd you end up with it? And he tells me a story about how he uh, had walked, he lives out past our house and he had walked by our house all the time and he'd always seen this bike there and, and he knew it was wrong and he was just tired of walking and blah, 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 and all this stuff. So he admits he stole it. He took the bike. He's very embarrassed and ashamed of himself and hanging his head low. He gets off the bike to push it to me and hand it back to me. And, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit helped me do a Holy Spirit thing and not a Thad thing. Um, I was able to look at him and say, hey, I accept your apology and um, thanks for returning my bike. I'd like to give it to you. And he just about hit the floor. Like his mouth was hanging open. His guilt and shame kind of started to lift and he started to lift his head up and look at the car and realize that there's this family and kids. My kids are in the car. They don't really quite know what I said to him at the time. They're still waiting to see if dad's going to throw a punch, right? They don't know how this is all playing out. And I was able to get back in the car and they're all like, first thing, why aren't you taking the bike back? Why aren't you taking the bike back? And I'm like, I, here's the deal. And I just sort of explained, like, this is sort of what God was showing me as I was 
having this interaction with him and I just felt like he knew he did the wrong thing and I wanted to forgive him and just give him the bike he really needed it, right? There is such a huge difference between coming with the mindset to take versus coming with an attitude that's ready to receive what's freely given. You know, when, when you uh, come with this attitude of taking, it, it brings with it stuff, right? It, it, it leaves you with guilt and shame and embarrassment and regret. And, and yet when you receive something that's freely given, it leaves you with appreciation and gratitude and oftentimes it spurs you on to want to give to others as well so so those are just some thoughts but the, the reality is these three things that Felix did are still things that people do today and I just want to wrap up with a few thoughts on really how we can maybe address these three things on a more personal level so first of all I just want to say this learning overcomes familiarity right so if you dig in and learn you can move from being vaguely familiar with Christianity, just being sort of aware of it, to actually knowing Jesus, to actually knowing who God is and what God's story is. And the best way to get to know Jesus is through God's Word. And so when you dig in and learn, you're overcoming this kind of um, uh, apathy and passive approach to your faith. You're being You're actively overcoming it by learning. And so you could... Go on a study tour like I've gone to in Turkey and Israel the last couple of summers. If you can't afford that, there's all sorts of guys that have done videos of the teachings that they've done on those study tours. There's things you can watch from Brad Gray or Ray Vanderland or any number of other amazing teachers, much less other resources. And so I just say, if, you're, if you want to overcome kind of your apathy and uh, sort of haphazard approach to Christianity, it's time to dig in and learn. And the next thing is uh, commitment overcomes convenience. Commitment overcomes convenience. If you're, if you're tired of feeling like your faith really only matters when it's convenient, then it's time to up your commitment. And the truth is, commitment takes sacrifice and discipline. Sacrifice and discipline. Everybody has heard that the things that, you, uh, the things that are important to you are going to be the things that you put time and energy into, right? Like you just naturally uh, gravitate towards things that are important to you. If you're here today or listening to this today and you're, you're thinking, man, my faith is important to me. I do want to grow and mature as a Christian. And I do want to like walk that out. I do want to up my commitment. I want to make that a priority. Then today's the day that you need to figure out how to make that important to you. And so that's going to require commitment. And so the third thing is that this idea that uh, eager to receive overcomes uh, what's in it for me, right? So if you think of those phrases, this, uh, this uh, uh, mindset or attitude is eager to receive overcomes uh, what's in it for me. So whether you're approaching church or your morning devotional or a small group uh, with a heart that is eager to receive, it's so much different than if you come into it with this mindset of what's in it for me, what can I get from this, this taker mentality. So to give you some practical ideas on what that might look like, what would it look like if you, if you came to church and before you came to church, you actually stopped and prayed or before you went to your small group or your Bible study or your Zoom group that you're doing or the book that you're going to sit down and read, um, you know, whatever, before you engage, what if you stopped and prayed and said, God, 
as I, as I come into this, help me walk into this with, with open hands, like ready to receive, open ears, uh, open heart, ready to receive. Help me hear what you want me to hear. Help me to learn what you want me to learn. Um, if I need to be corrected, if I'm off the path in some ways, Lord, help me be sensitive so I hear your correction. Help me know how to write my, my course, right? Like, what if you prayed that and imagine the difference in what you would receive, whether it was at worship or through a message or through your study or through your small group or a friendship or a book you're reading. Like, just imagine the difference that could make. So those are some things for us to chew on this morning and this week. And so with those things in mind, I want us to prepare our hearts to finish with communion this morning. Uh, Every week at Real Life, we take communion together um, because it's just, it's super, super important for us to consistently remember what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. So we're going to take a break and grab our elements for communion. If you haven't done that yet, now is a great time to do that. And then I'm going to be right back with you and we're going to take communion together. we take communion together and it's important for us to remember that you don't have to be a member of Real Life Church to take communion with us. Anybody that wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is welcome to take communion with us. And for us, as we take communion each week, it's a time where we can pause and reflect and remember what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And so this morning, as we get ready to take the bread and eat it together, it's It's something that every week we go through this um, uh, routine and we remind ourselves that uh, Christ uh, blessed this bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said that it uh, was a representation of his body that was sacrificed for us. So before we eat the bread, what I want to do is just give you a chance to pause and pray and thank God for the sacrifice that he made for you. And so let's take a minute and do that now. So Lord, we do thank you, and we are grateful that you sacrificed your body for us. And as we eat this bread, that's what we reflect and remember. So let's eat the bread together. And every week we do the same. We, we take the cup, and we remember that, um, that Jesus took the cup after supper, and he told his uh, disciples that the cup represented... Uh, a new covenant, a new gre- agreement or arrangement between uh, people and God. And it was um, sealed with the shedding of his blood. And it, it, this covenant meant that because of the shed blood of Jesus, there's forgiveness for our sins. And so before we drink the cup this morning, let's pause and let's specifically think of sins that um, God has forgiven us for and uh, just talk to him about our gratitude and our gratefulness that we can be forgiven and have those things removed as far from us as the east is from the west and that uh, God doesn't see those things when he looks at us. So let's take a minute and talk to God about those things and tell him thanks.
Lord, we do thank you that you forgive our sins. And Lord, that that's what this cup represents is the way our sins are forgiven by the shed blood of your son, Jesus. And so as, as we drink this this morning, that's what we remember. Go ahead and uh, close your eyes wherever you're at and just join me as we finish with prayer together. Father God, we just love you so much and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the direction and guidance it gives us, the lessons that we're learning each and every time we dig into it. God, I pray that you would continue to teach us from the message today, Lord, that it would uh, um, stir around in us the rest of the day and week, and that uh, in the, uh, the days to come, that you would recall things that we heard today in a timely way, and that uh, you would use this teaching to help us be changed to be more like your son. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, that's it for us this Sunday. Don't forget this coming Thursday night, the 25th, we are starting out in Colfax. So if you are not from Colfax, I would ask that you please don't come out to that service. Um, because we are limited to 50 people in each service, we're gonna be bumping up against that number, I think, pretty quickly in different locations. And we have a lot of folks that live out that way. So let's make sure that we keep the Colfax option on Thursday night. Um, at least initially, let's make sure that's open to all our folks out in Colfax. So Thursday night, the 25th, 6.30 at the Colfax uh, Methodist Church. And uh, be there a little bit early so that you can get in and get seated. Um, and uh, remember your masks for uh, that Thursday night. Um, and uh, we'll see you out there. So look forward to it and uh, see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.